0: Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media.
1: I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are back to finish The Graveyard Heart, a novella by Roger Zelazny. This is our discussion
0: episode, and I think we can just get right into it. So we will. I really only have, you know, two big sections uh, that the discussion is split into. There's some miscellaneous questions and stuff thrown in there. <laughs> Hopefully, I've structured it well enough that we'll cover everything (laughs) we talked about going in the discussion in the recap episode. Uh, But the first section is really about the world building of the story. And and that that should hopefully cover uh, the beliefs and attitudes of the characters, particularly more as well and what he's after in life. But we should probably open up with the quote uh, that we get from Leota pretty early on in the story about what the world is like and continues along in this path I think we're meant to get as the story goes on, particularly when we get Unger's uh, cuckoo clock speech, you know, the derivative cuckoo clock speech later on in the story about how peace is really bad for people because it doesn't create anything out of conflict, anything good to move humanity forward. This is what Leota says, In a world of physical ease, brutal social equality, and reasonable economic equality, exclusiveness and frivolity becomes the most sought after of all distinctions. So we just have to keep that in mind as we're talking about this world. So let's talk about the world and what it's like and what, if any, problems exist within the world. I want to start by pointing out things that really jumped out to me as important in world building, at least as it ties into the meaning of this story. And then, Glenn, I want to see what jumped out to you, or if I missed anything, or if there are other important elements that um, maybe are crucial to a reading of this story. To me, I see a world where people work as a means to some other end, rather than finding satisfaction in work itself. But the world is largely peaceful, people are largely equal, and, and progress continues to march forward. Moore is motivated by checking in on progress on some level, uh, by having faith in progress and technological advancement, and he's able to keep his faith in it, though when he realizes he's made a human life of his own, his attitudes change a little bit with regard to the type of life that a post-human society can really make, or a transhumanist society. Robots in the story are replacing people and their labor, and Moore believes for most of the story that something greater will come of this, you know, some greater type of being, that's really what I what I meant before. Though he begins to question whether this post-human being will be the messiah he once thought it might be. It's a world in which people believe that science and scientific progress or technological advancement will correct all societal and personal ills to the point where if someone is murdered they can be brought back to life at some point in the future once the means of restoring them to life is determined. I mean, even uh, murder by blunt force trauma to you know the brain and body can be repaired. And this idea that people don't really die even when they act out of some deeply human flaw has major impacts on the justice system as well, where the, even the punishments are symbolic, just like Unger's murder. Of Leota turns out to be symbolic. The doctor says Unger had a poet's sense of where the heart is, which means he probably thought it was like in the middle of the chest or, or in the <laughs> breast or something like that. And the, the real problem isn't that he hurt the heart, which can be easily enough re- repaired easily enough. It's that he damaged the spine, which they're still working on repairing. We have, you know, the curing of multiple sclerosis in this story. And the. Desire to escape death seems to be a big part of why a lot of people have joined the set and kind of refused to leave it, though there are other maybe deeper soul issues or spirit issues caught up in why people won't leave the set. So that's kind of the main sense of the world that I get, eluding, really eliding a lot of the specifics. I don't know, Glenn, if, if anything else really jumped out to you as being part of the world building that's about the story as well, instead of just giving incidentals about the world, though, feel free to talk about the incidentals you think are really cool.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I have to think about it in those terms, of course, just being a, a historian uh, that I'm, I'm really interested in, one, what Zelazny thinks the future is going to be like, what things, what's his view of of progress and time and social change, but then also, of course, what did he envision in the 1960s? What did he envision are actual present and, in fact, our past is going to be like. The, the first thing that I, I want to do just thinking about this, though, is to just really try to ground us in even when this story is taking place and sort of what's the scale of change that we're talking about. So the story begins in the year 2000 or, or properly, I suppose, the year 1999, but it is shortly about to be the year 2000. And it ends it's not entirely, and it's not entirely clear when it ends. The last uh, date for objective time that we're given is 2078, but I suspect that much more time has passed since then, and probably we're dealing with, uh, you know, 2099 or 2100 or something like that. So it's a kind of an even century uh, that the story takes place over. Though that last terminal date is never quite, is never actually given to us. But of course, for us saying the year 2000, the year 1999, that is our past. That's 20 years ago for us. But that still was almost 40 years in Zelazny's future. So he's looking ahead. The start of his story is 40 years in his future. And then the end of it is more or less 140 years, 150 years, something like that in his future. So he's looking at a pretty big swath of time and thinking about how that world is going to be different from the one that he's in and what are the things that are going to be different about it. And I'm really fascinated by what things he's optimistic about and and which things maybe he's not optimistic about, or at least less optimistic about. This is the 1960s. This is the the post-World War II era. This is uh, before even civil rights is really getting going, before kind of the, the turbulent 60s that we think of have gotten going is when he's working on this story. And so he really is envisioning this bright, shiny march of progress that that things in the 1960s are better than they were in the 1940s. How could they not be, right, given that World War II was happening in the 1940s? And now that we have fought the last war, which is a thing that he says explicitly, right, in this story, now that we have fought the last war, everything is going to be... Awesome. And it's going to keep getting better and better. And he is largely focused on technology, but some of that is because of the protagonist. The protagonist is an engineer. So he's going to think in those terms. This of course is something we see Gene Wolfe do all the time, Wolfe himself an engineer. So he's always interested in uh, thinking about technology when he's looking at his futures as well. And so we get things like super fast airplanes, uh, inexpensive uh, air transportation. Everyone's got private airfields like at their companies and so on. and, And service type labor, seems to be totally eradicated. No one is a bartender, right? We made a lot out of that. Probably no one's a barista either, though that's not actually something that Zelazny even had in his world and envisioned uh, that is so important for (laughs) ours. It's certainly how we spent our yesterday. And uh, also even just buying a plane ticket, for example, which is not something you do on the internet. That is not actually something that seems to exist, but he does go to the airport to get his plane ticket and just gets it from a robot, basically from like a, you know, an ATM more or less uh, from a ticket machine. All of those are things that Zelazny's envisioning that are going to be awesome about the future. Labor, saving, right? People don't have to do those jobs that would suck. And those things also are better. The air transportation itself is much improved. I mean, I think the idea that you can get just like a martini on the plane, I think is a big a big deal for him. It's not quite coffee on a spaceship, which we said in like our very first podcast episode together <laughs> ever. But, you know, martini in a plane is a sign that things are good about the future here. So there's a machine technology side to that. You also did point out, you know, things about medical advancements. We, we should also think, though, about the cryogenic freezing as a kind of medical ad- advance, but it is clearly not something that is available to everybody. This is part of the set's exclusivity. It's Elon is that they have access to this technology that not everyone else does. And in fact, it may be that almost nobody else has access to this technology. They don't seem to have a monopoly on it because we are told that there are other businesses like the set, competitors that that start up. They never succeed. The, one of the set's tactics is just buying them out. Uh, So there doesn't seem to be necessarily a legal monopoly on this technology, but we don't know why the set has it and other people are not having access to it, but perhaps it's just prohibitively expensive for some reason, whatever this drug cocktail is. Or maybe the limiting factor is, what are you going to do when you inject yourself with this? Just fall asleep in your bedroom, in your house, or your apartment, or whatever? How are you going to wake up? You need to have some apparatus there for that. What happens if, you know, I don't know your house catches on fire, which has happened in like 20% of the Elder science stories we've read this year, right? So like <laughs> clearly a real a real danger. So it's not clear what the what the limiting factor is there is what I'm trying to say. But This is a really crazy advance in technology that Zelazny is obviously obsessed with because we have done two stories about this, and I think he has written more stories about this as well. Yeah, this technology is old uh, even by more standards.
0: I I think we can say Mary Mon Mullen is maybe in her 60s to 80s. Uh, You know, I don't know enough about... The uh, degenerative process of MS to know kind of when you, you're you're not functioning anymore, but she is the last person of the 19th century. She was born in the late 1800s, in other words, and so this technology was developed early on in our history of the 20th century. It seems by the end of the story, it has extended to being allowed for people who suffer from injuries or death or something like that, because the whole legal system is really tied up in knots for the first time, maybe in a long time, by this question of murder or attempted murder, which there's no legal precedent for when you kill a frozen person who hasn't died. Uh, and, and if you bring them back to death, you bring them back to life. Are they going to die afterwards? And then what do you charge the person with? Uh, but the fact that Unger dies and is able to be brought back to life. We have this, you know, Lazarus imagery a little bit in the story which is uh, a person who Jesus resurrected from the dead in the New Testament in the Gospels. And I get I get the sense that by the end of the story that this technology is available for people to extend their natural life in order to be healed but not to live as the set lives which is kind of as as God's outside of time. And that that has had major impacts, that people don't really die anymore uh, apart from maybe natural causes, though it's not clear what natural causes even mean in this world by the time we get to the end of the story. I agree with you that we're looking at this story taking place over the course of a century
1: of our time as well. There's some other really interesting things we learn here at the end in in terms of this legal system, or because of around this legal system. The legal system is hyper efficient. Courts are run 24 hours a day. Uh, there's no there's there's very limited amount of, of waiting between getting charged and your actual trial, which is. Very different from the legal experience that you might have today, even if you're just trying to contest a speeding ticket or something like that. Everything takes an extremely long time. Zelazny clearly is mad about this or he has this on his mind. But he talks about the reason that it's all been streamlined and become hyper-efficient is actually because there are just so many people. So he's also envisioning a future in which population growth is happening at a constant and steady rate. Perhaps this is tied in as well to his idea of of, of peace being around the globe, that there are no more wars that are, are killing people. And so the population can just expand and expand and expand. One of the consequences of that is this legal system has to become hyper-efficient. But I think most writers today, someone today were writing a story in about the future in which the population is continuously expanding, uh, we would 99 times out of 100, maybe actually 999 times out of 1,000, uh, that writer is going to be using that as a kind of dystopic idea, as a bad thing. But that is not The case here for Zelazny. There are no, there don't seem to be any negative consequences to that population growth. And in fact, right, we are told by Leota that even despite the fact that there are so many people on the planet, there is still reasonable economic equality. There is complete social equality, uh, that people are having generally good lives. And that's in real contrast to the way that we would envision this. Maybe it's in real contrast to the way things have actually worked out. Also, in contrast to the way things have worked out along this front of like what people's lives are like is this whole business with the 20 hour work week right it's clear people are at least in the western world the united states and england is really where we see things happening here in the story people are working for a living they have to go to work in order to earn money to have all their material needs met, but their material needs are met more efficiently. Uh, There doesn't seem to be want anywhere on the planet. But then especially what we learn is that people only have to work 20 hours a week to make what presumably is a kind of nice, comfortable middle class living. And that, you know, I made a joke about that in the, the recap because that is not what has happened. We did have maybe in the sixties, seventies and eighties, the idea of a forty hour work week. Most of us now are working fifty hour work weeks or more and not necessarily getting any kind of overtime pay or anything like that. So that's a that is an area where we have, uh, from the standpoint of workers anyway, seen something bad happen, some kind of negative change. But when Zelazny's writing this in the nineteen sixties, the work of labor unions was not just about Uh, trying to get increased pay, increased hourly rates from employers, and trying to make sure that members of the union, that employees of companies had good health insurance and other types of benefits, the length of the work week was a massive deal in the, the 19th and then especially in the early and middle 20th century, that it had come down from 80 hours a week to 70, to 60, to 50, to 40. And there didn't seem to be any reason why that wouldn't keep going down to something like 35, 30, and maybe... Eventually, 20 as productivity has gone up because of the changes in technology. And that is something that has continued to change, right? Productivity is much more than it was in the 1960s, but somehow our labor unions have stopped asking for uh, a reduced. Work week, and in fact, have even given into extended work weeks uh, in exchange for other benefits or for maintaining other benefits like health care and just a a middle class uh, income, a middle class wage to begin with. So, that to me was a really interesting part of the the way that Zelazny perceives the, the future here.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Zelazny is looking at the impact maybe that a 20 hour work week would have on people when there isn't really conflict or strife in the society anymore, but that strife kind of still exists within people. And I think Salazni doing something pretty sly here, actually. You said that this population boom is not written as dystopic, but I'm not sure that that's the case. And, and I think we have to look at whether or not this world is actually better than the world we live in now or if it's just superficially better uh, because people are still subject to their passions and create conflicts and problems. This is a major theme of the story that this kind of uh, becoming a god or living outside of time or having some attribute of god doesn't actually improve your humanity in any way, but also the fact that the population boom is so big that resources are dwindling. We see this with this kind of reference to diminishing amounts of wood that uh, Mary Mon Mullen can use in order to keep her fire burning in her hell place. But also the fact that we need a court system that does run 24 7 because <laughs> the problems that people create on their own have not been uh, run out of society as a result of technological advancement. So I think Zelazny, whether he's doing it really well or not, is slyly building in uh, kind of cognitive dissonance in the story and showing us one aspect of this society, which is just the set. and. Letting us draw the conclusion of whether or not this world is just the world beyond the set is superficially better or actually better. I wonder, you know, if if you have any more thoughts on that. I,
1: I do. I, here again, I think is a, is a place where you and I are using a Zelazny story to air our complete differences in just kind of disposition towards the world. Because <laughs> I took all of this as positive, uh, where you're pointing to resource scarcities. I mean, of course, there are resource scarcities, because there are more people that, that is. But every in every one of these places, Zelazny shows us these people having solved the problem, right? This is in fact, what Moore does. This is how he got his wealth and got into the set is by saying, yeah, there's a lot of people now. So we actually need more fresh water. There isn't any fresh water, or there's not enough actual genuine fresh water to keep up with the drinking supply for everybody. But hey, check it out. I can make the ocean fresh water. And problem solved. Uh, the legal system is being taxed the way that it, it works currently. So hey, guess what? We'll just fix the legal system, and now it works again. And then also the business, the business with the wood. I, I didn't take that to mean that you know, all the forests are, are gone, that there are no more real trees, but that yeah, there's not enough real trees uh, out there in the world to meet the demand for every person to have a wood-burning fireplace. We also actually learned this about regular paper as well, that you don't just use regular paper because yeah, there aren't enough trees. But actually, we've just made our our. Artificial stuff, so we don't need the trees anymore. And in fact, probably national parks and other wilderness areas are doing just fine because we've created a process where we don't need to do any kind of logging anymore because we can make artificial wood to satisfy our needs for both wood-burning fireplaces for some kind of aesthetic and paper for another kind of aesthetic that we, we've we solved all of those problems. And so the world is is improved in, in that way. Yeah, I mean, I guess we just have to look at whether or not
0: Unger's attitudes about this are accurate in any way or misguided or misleading the reader. This is what Unger says. And we have to determine, I think, whether or not, it's our job as readers to understand whether or not this is good. I think there are facts in this speech that Unger gives in this little monologue. uh, and, And I think apart from his attitude, Zelazny wants us to question whether or not it's an objective good based on the way he's telling the story. So this is what Unger says. We, we talked about it in the recap episode. He says, now there is nothing left to fight over, and everyone is showing off the fruits of peace, because everyone has some, by the roomful, all they want, more. These things that fill rooms, though, he mused, and the mind, how they have proliferated, each month's version is better than the last in some hyper-sophisticated manner. They seem to have absorbed the minds that are absorbed within them. So Unger maybe is looking at this exploded technological advancement as a crisis of humanity, of what makes humans humans. And I think that's really caught up in the world building of the story. And I wonder uh, if I can convince you at all to retract your statement that what is happening to humanity is good in this story or whether I'm
1: just too much like Unger in real life for, 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 for the podcast. Yeah. You might, you might be the embodiment of, of Unger here because Unger's whole speech here is, is just nonsense, right? There is no. There is no measurable way or immeasurable way that we could say that there is that, that there are good things that come out of uh, people choking to death on their own mucus in a mustard gas attack or having their legs blown off by landmines there 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 is no good that comes from uh, mothers and wives and kids finding out that their soldier you know father brother son husband have died in war there there is no good that comes of that right so what Unger is proposing here this idea that we need conflicts that that international peace that that geopolitical peace is, is bad for the world because it's it's stifled creativity i mean i think that's uh, even if it has stifled creativity, that's a that's a, that's a a trade we have to make. We'd have to be willing to make that trade. But I also just don't think it's true, right? I mean, I think objectively we can look at, at our own world, though we are right now, of course, still in uh, America's longest running war, a sort of eternal war in Afghanistan, though that may be ending actually finally, though that's, uh, I don't know, we shouldn't get our hopes up about that too soon, I guess. But even though that's been true, we have not had what we would call a major war in a very long time, meaning a war of one big state against another big state requiring a mobilization of more than about 5% of the population population. Uh, and the use of significant amounts of, uh, you know, gross domestic product and so on, in order to to wage the war. People haven't been having to give things up to ration food uh, and and so on, in order to wage our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And really, this could be true even from the the end of the the Vietnam War. That though we have had conflicts, they have not been of the nature of the Second World War, the Korean War, the First World War, and even even the the style of wars in the nineteenth century as well. That has been true about our world. This is something that. Zelazny maybe has accurately predicted about the history of the future, and uh, hey, look, we're li- we're living in the golden age of television. Right, and we wouldn't be if World <laughs> War Two was going on, right? Because we wouldn't have the resources for that. So, I, you know, whether setting aside the question of what Zelazny's saying, right, what what Unger is saying here is demonstrably untrue, or at least demonstrably unnecessary, right? There could be a world in which that is true. I mean, the ancient Greeks certainly thought this was true, but but we are living in a world where that demonstrably is is untrue. The creativity, artistic output, the access to uh, arts and entertainments of all forms is has greatly been increased by the fact that we can uh, we can develop technologies and and put resources towards towards doing that. Uh, now, people have complaints about what the internet has done and d- other types of digital te- technology have done to us, a sort of bread and circuses type complaint among other things, then so many of those might be legitimate, but I just can't I can't possibly agree with with Unger's assessment here. And I don't think that Zelazny is really showing us that world either, because the only bit of the world where we see objectively where are where are arts available to people or whether or not they are available to people uh, come in uh, moore's uh, interaction with things and there are a couple things and there are several things that we know one you can have the airplane computer read poetry to you and that's like the third thing it thinks you might want okay that's not what people are going to want today right so if anything people are more artistically sophisticated in zelazny's view of the future than they are in our own but also when moore says i need to better myself i need to make improvements i need to get an education in order to get in the set also in order to woo leota to begin with he has access to all of that he goes about memorizing bits of restoration drawing drama. He's got technology that can help him with this. Zelazny has not, you know, predicted ebooks or podcasts or any of the other things about the internet here. But he does have these technologies that have access to all of like the, the great works of art, all of the works of art, all the works of literature. And like they basically kind of read them to more while he's sleeping or something like that. So Zelazny has envisioned here a future where people have access to art and entertainment, but not just access to it, but seem to want those things. And so to my mind, what Unger is showing us or what Unger is claiming is just can't even be shown in the story. Well, at least in
0: the story, and I, and I do agree with you. I mean, I'm I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit because Unger is also publishing poetry during this time, <laughs> right. not having experienced war or conflict or anything like that. But I think part of the attitude that Unger represents in this story is that all of this engagement with the arts is about a, a means to an end, not about the say clearing the graveyard of the human heart of strife and conflict and and so though society may be advancing or progressing it's the question of what's it in service to is it just uh, a me- is is progress a means to an end if so what's the end point and if it's merely just uh, if it's if it's not if it's an never ending end in itself, so to speak, or if it's a never-ending search for something more, is that really good for humanity? Does humanity lose something by continuing on in this mode of progress that doesn't address the real flaws that are within the individual? And I, and I, and I think that Zelazny is asking those questions in this text. What is progress? and what is the end of progress if there is one and what's the impact on the human and i think we see that finally at the end of the story with this ethical question being raised and the justice system i mean we could make an argument that justice is nothing more than symbolic right now and and we're pretty comfortable with that uh, the classical definition of justice is to give each person their due so in a world where everybody's needs are taken care of um in a world where the legal system is swift to enact justice. Is it enough for somebody to uh, fake die in a gas chamber? Is that taking that notion of justice as symbolic of giving somebody their due to an absurd level? Or is Zelazny commenting on the impact of progress on the on the individual, the living in service to a never-ending progress as? detrimental to the human spirit in some way. Right. I
1: think there is something to what Zelazny is saying there, or, or, or I think there's something to your reading, at least, of what Zelazny is is, is doing here. One of the things we talked about in the, in the recap episode, we're sort of looking at the 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 contrast. I mean, I, I was talking about it and ego or it and superego, like kind of internally to more at the beginning of the story, for example, but one of the things that we didn't talk about that maybe we, we could have, and, and now is a good place to bring it up is, is the contrast between the Apollonian and Dionysian, uh, cultural, uh, And maybe social tendencies that we have. I mean, this is something that Nietzsche was super into. This idea of the Apollonian uh, tendencies being these kind of like highbrow, sophisticated, pure urges that we that we have towards kind of this uh, this this clean goodness. But then that we have these Dionysian tendencies on the other hand, that sort of uh, you know get drunk and have revels and maybe do damage and and wage war and so on. And that we as individuals, we as societies, have both types of impulses within us, and that a flourishing, a well-functioning civilization leans into the Apollonian but still has an outlet for the Dionysian. And I do think Zelazny is trying to tell us a story here about a a society that is Apollonian to the extreme and doesn't seem to have an outlet for anything Dionysian and that here we get murder, or at least, you know, that's what the government is asking at the end. And Mary Maud Mullen is saying, yeah, whatever. Um, I don't really care about that or or think that that's maybe a real problem, but that does seem to be something that Zelazny is, is pointing to here. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how you think that reading of the story or that approach to the
0: story gives us a sense of what the set actually represents to larger society. I mean, what hopes and aspirations does the set actually represent? What do they offer to the world at large? I mean, and that kind of includes the question of whether or not this society is fully globalized, which it it sort of seems to be, and, and whether or not people should be admiring or
1: worshiping this thing that the set represents whatever it is right this is something that does puzzle me i actually want to uh, sidestep that first just to think about whether or not the world is truly globalized because i was thrown into the thinking about world building here i was thrown by the celebration of the centennial of the uh, October Revolution in 1917, it was uh, it, it seemed that the Soviet Union is still in existence in 2017 when that party takes place. There's a commissar at the, the party who seems to be the head of state in some way, but at the same time, a lot of the information that we're given about the world is given about the world and not about the United States or about England. Where its cities exist, but countries don't seem to. I don't think we have enough information to really do very much with that, but uh, but I wanted to, I just, but I did want to call attention to that. But in terms of thinking of what is the set for, what's its function or how do people engage with it, right? We are told explicitly that the members of the set, you know, when they, they sign this contract, what they get out of it uh, is the cryogenic freezing, right? Getting to live objectively long lives. They get paid quite well, um, or at least they get paid, well enough. And because they are living objectively longer lives in relationship to their subjective lives, they will be rich at the end of their contract. I mean, it's some kind of labor contract for a period. We don't get told what the period is, but it doesn't seem like it's very long. It seems to be a decade or less uh, to me. Uh, so that's what they get. Members of the set get out of it. But what the company, what the business of the set gets out of it is that all of these uh, beautiful and, and charming and sophisticated people are going to throw parties and they're going to they're gonna engage with each other. In these parties, they're going to put on a kind of performance that people are going to watch. Uh, not just at the party, though—that's a big part of the business. That's probably where they make the bulk of their money. Is like at the party itself, people getting to go. Uh, and we're told that Moore had to give up a month's salary in order to get to that New Year's Eve party that the the story opens with. Uh, but we're also told that people are watching this on TV. At least by the end of the the story, that might not have been true in 1999, but it's definitely true near the end of the story that people are interested in watching the set on. TV as a kind of, I guess it's reality TV, right? People are watching things like this. This is what YouTube is. This is what, I don't know, Love is Blind is this, this, all these sort of, (laughs) you know, relationship shows that we have are basically more and Unger and Leota. Zelazny has kind of predicted uh, the rise of reality TV, I guess, really only about 30 years, you know, before that became a real thing. But to really circle around to answering your question, I mean, I think what this seems to give people is a taste of grandeur and elegance and maybe eloquence that that they they want. They want to see that that there are pretty people, sophisticated people in the world that they can look at and look to. I mean, it's really celebrity culture, right, that Zelazny is, is thinking about here. And I'm having a hard time really even explaining or describing it because it's not a thing, it's not an impulse that I have at all. But it is clearly an impulse that loads of people do have, because there is a whole industry around this. And I think that that's just what Zelazny is envisioning, is that we've replaced the covers of mag of magazines at the grocery store checkout aisle with this type of reality TV. Yeah. And this is just an aside, but do you think
0: Leota was in the set before Unger uh, was, and and he kind of was drawn to the set because of her? and And we know he joined the set in... I don't know, eighty one or something like that. Maybe, maybe before even Moore was born. Uh, what what do you think the timeline is for the three main characters joining the set? I mean, we know when Moore did. No, I
1: think you've got it right exactly. I think that Unger joined the set for the same reason that Moore did—that he was he was pursuing Leota. And there's a kind of cycle here going on, uh, you know, among these these three characters. And I, I think this is something we're going to want to keep in mind, want to think about when we take up the question of of authorship as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There are just two side things I want to bring up before we move into the other big section of the discussion. One is Mary Maud Mullen and the China dogs. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in the recap, but I but I want to highlight this just to just be able to maybe highlight some of, uh, of Zelazny's craftsmanship of this story. You know, this China dog... It, tradition that pops up where everybody gives her one and then she has her favorites and some she kind of puts near the fire. And this is both a cue into how symbolism works in the story, but also foreshadowing. Uh, I I just think Zelazny is, is a master here of both symbolism and foreshadowing. And I'm wondering if anything of that nature also jumped out to you in this story beside the China dogs. And so I wonder if there are other kind of bits of craft that really jumped out at you as while you were reading the story that Zelazny just put on display for us.
1: Oh yeah, well the, the the foreshadowing with the the symbolism is is fantastic. I mean, we did in the recap talk also about the the cracking dome under the sea at the exact moment that things inside our characters are beginning to crack or relationships are beginning to crack is is fantastic. Uh, I do I do also think that there's a lot that Zelazny is doing even though I've just been talking about how the artificial wood and so on is a solution to a, a technical problem that has allowed for uh, a high standard of living for most people on the planet and for more people than there. are and for more people than there were on the planet in 1963 1964 when he was writing and publishing this story there is still a heavy emphasis on the kind of artificiality of of things including the wooden stake that Unger uh, drives into the heart of Lyota. all of that is really interesting bits of of symbolism uh, but and but but I think we also have to bring in here and we but I think we also have to bring in here and you did a great job of this in the recap of talking about the illusions I mean this story is just so full of of illusions even whether that's all of the different maiden names apparently that Eliota has <laughs> uh, but then also just quoting scripture quoting Macbeth bringing in uh Kabbalah uh, and it's just so a uh, Faust as well uh, Greek mythology I mean there's just so much that Zelazny is drawing in here uh as a as a type of technique uh, you 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 could miss a lot of it and still pick enough of it up to understand what he's doing because he's throwing so much at you.
0: Well, that is exactly where the discussion is going next, missing a lot of the illusions, but hopefully talking about enough (laughs) of them uh, to give us a real sense of what Zelazny is doing here. Uh, I think we're probably actually going to hit most of them, but our listeners and and those who will join us on the forums will be able to point out the ones we missed, I hope. Uh, As you said, the Graveyard Heart is just chock full of literary illusions and mythological connections and religious imagery and all these types of parallels that show up in the text. It's time we take a look at these in the story and see what we can make of them and maybe answer the question of why Zelazny has placed them there apart from just uh, artisanship and and craftsmanship. We really want to see what they're doing to enhance the story. And so we're just going to take them each kind of categorically. And we'll, we'll start with literary allusions here. We've got references to T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, two uh, references to that. One spoken by Unger himself, one thought by Mary Maud Mullen as a kind of aside. We have Shakespeare references in the form of Macbeth and Hamlet and Twelfth Night. I mean, somebody at the party says, married uh, at Christmas, divorced by Twelfth Night. Leota refers to Unger as poor Yorick at one point. I knew, you know. I knew you. I knew ye is basically what she says, and that knowing is could be taken in the biblical sense or in the in the Shakespearean sense. It's a little bit of a pun, I think. Salasni is doing Faust, uh, which we talked about in the in the recap, which Pasternak translated into Russian along with the Shakespeare plays and other poetry uh, mentioned above. We have mentions of Tennyson, Alfred Lord Tennyson, is someone that Moore has read in order to impress Mary Mon Mullen. That's another example of the kind of treating art as a means to an end rather than something to uh, appreciate, uh, something that's uh, edifying to the soul, to the human itself. Uh, we have a reference to Henry Wordsworth Longfellow when Moore says onward and Excelsior. Uh, we have Matthew Arnold's poem Requiescat. Unger has a collection of poems called Paradise Unwanted, which is a reference to Paradise Lost. And and as we've pointed out in the recap and and maybe up to this point in the discussion episode, many of these illusions are mentioned by Unger who we naturally expect to have this sort of you know literary mind and elusive uh, relationship with the world and maybe he's doing it I don't know to demonstrate how intellectually superior he is or how much of a sense of wit he has around other people but I want to ask you, Glenn, now that 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 I've kind of run through that list rapidly, there's also the Flying Dutchman and these other references we see in the story, if any of these illusions jumped out at you as significant beyond just... Beyond just having had a reference made to them, beyond just the elusive nature. You know, for me, uh, Faust really jumps out as being part of the story that kind of ties it all together with Mary Mon Mullen being a, a devil type figure. But what, what's really kind of jumped out to you as uh, these illusions that are, you know, the proverbial rug that, that ties the room together?
1: Right. There are, I think, two big things going on here. One of them is I- immortality. Or the quest for immortality. This is where uh, we, you know, Faust comes in. The Flying Dutchman comes in. This is about people uh, living forever, in in some sense, not always a, a good sense, but but questing after that or being cursed with that in some way. It's you know, in fact, we can even think back to the the Keys to December. Whether this is a blessing or a curse was the the kind of key question raised uh, in in that story. Uh, so that's one thing: living forever, immortality, the 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 quest for it, the curse of that. The and the other thing is seductresses or or temptresses, foul temptresses, we might say. This is a big part of Macbeth, of course, right? Lady Macbeth uh, corrupting Macbeth himself and and getting him to commit this heinous murder that maybe otherwise, without her influence, he would not have done. Uh, Certainly, Unger thinks that Leota is tempting him in some way and is driving him to her own Murder, uh, of course, we get this. Of course, this is happening in the biblical allusions as well, right? Eve, uh, is Eve is frequently read as being uh, a temptress, as being a corrupter of a of a male figure, of 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 introducing evil or villainy into the world uh, by tricking man, by corrupting man, a male, I should say, in some in some way. Uh, and and there are a lot of these going on, right? These are the sort of two things I think that most of these illusions are about, and some of them actually link up together, right? That this is something the Flying Dutchman has both of these things. Uh, uh, Lorelei, as a, a mythological figure, may may you know kind of stride uh, may straddle over both of these things as well. But well, those are the two things that I saw Zelazny playing with a lot, but you, you probably saw more than that. You know, I didn't see too much more than that. I think Zelazny is just making
0: really good use of these allusions to help his story and develop his characters. I mean, Unger quoting this kind of madly at the end of the story is, is chilling. And it's entirely possible that it was Unger who said married at Christmas divorced by 12th night. I can't imagine anybody else in the set saying <laughs> something like that. Uh Unger's attitude is is really demonstrated through his quote quoting of the wasteland. He says April is the cruelest month. Uh when they say they're going to wake up in the spring in April and and leave the set and I just think Zelazny has a real handle on the history of literature here, not to mention you know, the idea of the set being a, a big part of one of the In Search of Lost Time novels. I can't remember which one. It's certainly in the first three, uh, probably the second or third one, Germant's way maybe. Um, and all, all of these sorts of ideas tie together to give us a deep sense of what the world is like, what the life is like for the set if we've encountered some of these poems, plays, stories, novels uh, before, and although this is an incredibly long story, these allusions do a lot of work to add to the world and let us know that these people are sort of these last clinger, these last clingers to what might be called like high art in some way, that they do represent glitz and glamour. They represent basically the, the French court. And this is a, a story of a court in crisis, basically. And, and why do some people get to be in the court? Why, why others uh, Why are others excluded? What is courtly gossip for? I mean, this is all sort of stuff that's baked into the illusions of the story.
1: Something that Zelazny tells us, but doesn't really show us, and this might be one of the few craft weaknesses, I think, that I find in this story, but he tells us at the beginning, right, that Moore has to get himself this education. He has to be able to quote restoration drama. He has to be able to speak in French. And Leota is speaking French to him as they dance, even though she, she's aware of the fact that Moore doesn't speak French. So there is a sense at the beginning of the story, especially that that being witty, being clever, that maybe even declaiming like for the camera or for other partygoers at least is something that the members of the set are doing, that they are supposed to, to be out of time in some sense, a kind of relic from the past past. past, almost uh, acting as if they are even from a past that is older than any of them, a past that they never actually lived in. We don't see a lot of that. We actually don't get this story from the perspective of how someone might be paying attention to this if they were watching it on TV. We're seeing it from the perspective of, well, I mean, in some sense, this is kind of a workplace drama, right? So we're seeing it from the perspective of people who are at their job and just take for granted that their job stuff is happening. And this is about the stuff that is extraordinary to the the job stuff, right? That's out of the ordinary to the, the the mundane job stuff. But if we were, I think, to be just watching this on TV or even just happen to have been able to spend a month's salary to get to one of these parties, I think that we would be seeing the members of the set being more performative than we actually, gl- actually glimpse them here in the drama. Right. And I think that that kind of performativity, that always
0: needing to be on, the always and only being at a party, the constant surveillance that they're under, Uh, in all sorts of ways is kind of a real wear on these people, which is why uh, the kind of Faustian bargain comes up at the end of the story. And it's also why Moore makes peace with leaving. I think he decides living out a natural life, though he's scared. He says it's knowledge that he needs of the new world, but it's fear that he has um, of, of what that world is going to be. He realizes maybe being useless in normal time will give him the opportunity to do something valuable, whereas being a part of the set here in this weird uh, time slip that they live through is absolutely not doing any good. And his desire to be a passive observer rather than a participator begins to wear on him. And, and we see in the under the sea dance how it really begins to wear on everybody, how it just is is awful uh, that when the cameras roll stop rolling, people just break down. Well let's move on to the mythological connections and parallels here that we that Zelazny has put in the story. Uh the people of the set are often referred to as small g gods and goddesses. Um Mary Maud Mullen is referred to as a as a gargoyle who's going to uh (laughs) you know defeat the beast of Armageddon. Moore's first wife we brought up in the recap is called Diane Demetrios, and this is, as we said, a combination of Diana, the goddess of the hunt, and Demeter, the goddess of Harvest and fertility. Um, there are these references to Hades and Hell in Mullen's office. Leota is referred to the goddess of the set or the set queen, and we see that like her child would be a, a shoo-in for the people of the set, and that would inherit this kind of queenly position. To me, this is kind of like Cleopatra language. Um, We have a passage that talks about how the set is like those gods of old who appeared at the rites of the equinoxes, slept between processions, and were re-manifest with each new season, the bulk of humanity living through all those dreary days that lay between. This is a condescending attitude towards the bulk of humanity, uh, but also kind of uh, maybe a sad attitude if you're a human that's living life like one of those old gods. And this attitude is what Moore believes he'll be achieving by becoming a, a member of the set. We also have these references to Leota, these n- names, these sobriquets that she's given, like Lorelei and Lachesis as well. Um, and so I'm just wondering what you think Zelazny is showing us with these mythological parallels or comparisons to the mundane, ordinary life of
1: the non-set. Something that Zelazny is very clearly interested in, just even thinking about to December but knowing a little bit more about some of his other writing I'm, I'm thinking of Lord of light here and, and, and also the the Chronicles of amber as well is that he's very interested in what do we even mean by the word God uh, or and, and maybe what did historical people mean by the word God right what did a what did a Greek and Roman mean when they said uh, Theos or, or Deus and it's a good question right what what are the attributes of of God what are the attributes of a small G God for sure and I think one of the big ones one of the may one of the major attributes, right, is immortality. Uh, certainly these classical the Greek mythology gods, small g gods, they, they live forever is the real thing that separates them from mortals, right? That otherwise they have a lot of this, the same passions, the same interests, the same drives. Yeah, I mean, the stuff they want to be gluttonous on and get drunk on and so on are different than what humans are, but they have the same behaviors. Uh, and in fact, if anything, they're, they're less moral and less righteous actually than humans. They're always just, Cheating on each other and always betraying each other in like as many ways as they can possibly conceive of, but then physically, right? They are superior to humans. They are more beautiful. They are larger than life. They're stronger. They're better at war. They're better at arts than than humans are. Right? That they are. They are. They are idealized forms of humans who live forever and have bigger than life, larger than life stories, maybe is the way to put it. And that is definitely what the set is doing. Now, it's totally artificial, but that is what they are up to. They are the prettiest. They are the most educated. They're the cleverest, the, the wittiest, and they are functionally Immortal, right, from the perspective of someone watching them on TV right the that your grandparents used to watch Leota and Moore dance on TV as well, and while you 're watching them they 're only three weeks older than they were when you know your grandmother watched them or whatever so that 's the way in which the comparison works, but I think what i 'm really curious about is why is this on zelazny 's mind right? why is he so seemingly kind of obsessed actually with the idea of whether or not humans can achieve this kind of Godhood, this small g godhood, this kind of immortality. I think this is really caught up with his critique of progressivism
0: as a as an ideology. And it's the idea that if we can solve all of our problems with science and technological advancement, if we can elevate people in our society to the level of godhood by wanting to only see them do great Feats like somebody like Steve Jobs or you know Elon Musk who we talked about in uh, Keys to December or uh, you know the heads of Google kind of keep their names out of the out of the newspaper a lot, but th- these types of mythical figures that we don't really want to know about their deep flaws as people about their own graveyard hearts, uh, but we want to see the sort of pettiness. Come out in different ways. We want to see Elon Musk smoke pot on the Joe Rogan podcast. And we want to, we kind of love to hear maybe some of us do, uh, as a sense of Schadenfreude, like Steve Jobs refusing to go to a doctor or like take medicine because he had some sort of uh, holistic medication, holistic regime to help solve his cancer problem. Like hearing these things, these bits of news and factoids that kind of take these people down a peg. And I think that that is the tension of being in the set. I think Zelazny's looking at rapid technological change maybe as a result of the industry and war industry of World War II, uh, combined with the prevalence of television in the home and the creation of celebrity. We have this old movie star who's just uh, melted Basically, there's nothing left of him but like drink and sagging skin. And so, Zelazny, I think, has these things on his mind because of the rapid transition that society is going through in the 1960s and probably the science fiction he was reading, the promise of robots. Uh, This story, to me, is about whether or not we can even solve the problem of a human motivation with all of this stuff. And if we can't do that, all of these things are just uh, icing on the cake, um, but the cake is maybe rotten inside. And so I think he's dealing with these types of tensions in this story in particular.
1: Oddly, I, I think actually one of the places that we can we can look for a, a real world parallel to the set is the, the way that the, the British royal family. Operates in terms of living inside these palaces where people don't have access to them, but their job is to not necessarily be the prettiest, but to be distinct, right? To be better than in some sense, and to represent uh, a connection to an older time, a time that is romanticized, and a, but a time that, that, that seems anyway to be, to be past, or at least the elements of it that are romanticized seem to have been lost, right? And so this is one of the connections to it. But then their function in society is to show up to parties, uh, to throw parties, of course, as well, but also to show up to parties, to show up to functions, to give, give speeches when a, a school is opened or a factory is opened or something like that, to, to go to events, to make an appearance, to be seen basically to write, i've got to be here for 30 more minutes i have to be seen here for 30 minutes and then i can then i can leave that seems actually to be the kind of model here yeah and 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 i think that
0: model is rooted in the court system you know and like courtly uh, dramas and gossip that that is part and parcel of you know the invention of the novel <laughs> coming from france <laughs> so i think zelazny's kind of really looking at all of these things as well uh, but but maybe also just the dangers of turning people into icons, which has been happening since, you know, noir films started to get made, basically. Well, let's move on now to look at the religious imagery and references in the story. Early in the story, there are tons of references to Kabbalah, especially early on. Leota is referred to as Lilith and Eve. Characters, ex- these people, maybe exist beyond the boundaries of Kabbalah, but I think because of the way they're referenced, we're meant to, to look at them within those categories. Both of these women are wives of Adam, who Leota refers to more as once. Uh, so Lilith is evil, and Eve is certainly a more complicated figure. I think you, you talked about what makes her a complicated figure a little bit earlier uh, in the story, but certainly better than, certainly better than Lilith. And Moore only refers to Leota as Eve uh, to her face, and we're not sure if who if the narrator of the story has, as I've been saying, like editorialized these uh, other nicknames like Nay Lilith. Uh, we also get reference to Malkuth. Malkuth is the tenth Sephiroth, uh, or like attribute or manifestation of God in Kabbalah, and. Malkuth sits at the base of the Tree of Life, and I think this image uh, we need to hold in our mind it's more who makes this reference to Malkuth and, and says basically that the party at the set is is this sort of a- attribute of God to him. Um, but we need to keep this image in mind when we get to the end of the story and see more collapsing at the foot of the cross and other kind of tree of life. If you're a Christian, so to speak, <laughs> at the end of the story, and I think this also now moves us into Christian imagery. There is the manger and cross at Christmas time at the end of the story. This story begins and ends with Christmas tree imagery. We get more mentioning uh, schlaraffenland which is German for the land of milk and honey. This is a reference to the promised land in, in the Judeo-Christian religious tradition. And he says this nearly in the same breath while talking about Mary Maud Mullen's role in preventing Armageddon as this kind of frozen gargoyle. And Armageddon is the final battle between you know good and evil before God will instantiate his new kingdom. Uh, this is another promised land image. Plus, you know, there's a really funny line where Moore and Lyota are talking about vacationing and Moore says he'll have his milk and honeydew unblended. It's a <laughs> cheeky reference uh, maybe about how their vacations are really not enough for him. Uh, they're not the promised land he he thought he would be living with Lyota. And finally, we get Mullen telling Moore he'll need to be like a Buddhist and have a deeply accepting attitude towards the changes he will see in the world. Uh, though he will have no ability to impact them. So all this kind of moves through the story. We start with this Kabbalic sensibilities, and we see him kind of being asked to adapt this Buddhist mindset. And at the end, we see all these Christian symbols show up at the story. So I have to wonder, is Elazni showing us more his character arc with these religious symbols? Um, Is he demonstrating more his attitudes in some way, or is there something more going on with the presence of Kabbalah, Buddhism, and Christianity in the story?
1: Well, there might be more going on. In fact, there probably is. But I do really like your idea that Salasni is using these to to highlight, to emphasize Moore's internal character arc as well. Because one of the things that uh, really jumped out to me on my my third reading of the story, I read the story a lot in preparation for these episodes. Uh, but what jumped out to me on my third reading was that the Buddhist imagery or the the Buddhist references, which are so prevalent in the first act of the story, are aren't. Anywhere else in the story, they don't appear by the time. Certainly, by the time we get to the third act, they're all gone. But that is the act actually where we get the heaviest uh, Christian presence, and then the the Jewish uh, the Jewish references kind of persist throughout the the story. And so it does seem like the Buddhist references are all there when Moore is trying to make. He's trying to kind of exist in a kind of neutral sense in the world, to just be present, to be where he is, to resign himself in some way to what his life is like at this moment, to lay aside his ambitions and his his ideas and yearnings for the future. And he does not succeed at that. And then at the end, right, when we do start to get the the Christian imagery coming in fairly strong is when more is coming back into the world and, in fact, is going to come into the world in a, in a way that is just full of, of suffering, in, a, in a, a way that is just full of of pathos, a way that's almost unbearable. Yeah, it's really strange to me how Moore seeks out this this
0: church at the end of the story uh, and, and kind of collapses accidentally at the foot of the cross, which is a symbol of uh, kind of recognizing your need for forgiveness from sin or whatever's going on. I mean, this is a moment recognizing your need uh, to be forgiven from the sins you've committed. And and this is a moment where Moore has really crossed a line for the first time. He's taken a life, and he needs absolution. And so he goes to a Christian church. The uh, This is The second story you've read by Zelazny, and it really makes me wonder what Zelazny's relationship with Christianity is because he he seems to see that as the kind of answer to humanity's problems here more than this uh, post-human transhumanist society offers. And, And the figure of Unger is kind of this underground man type, bitter, cynical who only sees the worst in people and in humanity, uh, but also that fuels his ability to continue to live in the world. He doesn't want to do anything about it. He certainly doesn't want to change his circumstances at all. And Unger is so bitter that all of the good things in life offer him no no salve really for his wounded heart that, that he's not been able to, to get that he's not been able to get over Leota. He's not been able to move on. He's not been able to leave the set. He's really paralyzed by fear. And this final moment is kind of this maybe symbolic recognition that, uh, justice, that the f- final bits of justice are not done in courts on earth, and that there is a, another way of living that is not seeking progress for all humanity, but by recognizing your own problems and the flaws of humanity and and trying to correct them. And I see that as Moore's character arc. Though the last line of the story about Moore saying, well, at least I'll have a good credit score or good credit when I wake up, undercuts this in some way. And I wonder if you think Moore has a full character arc here or Zelazny is undercutting it uh, and undermining the symbolic work he's
1: done throughout the story by this witty line at the end. It is a witty line at the end. I really liked it. I, I I think it serves the the character arc though, right? I think this ironic de- detachment, or at least attempt at ironic detachment that Moore is offering here, the sense that when I wake up, my problems might not be gone, uh, meaning his problem that his wife might actually be dead, or at least might be paralyzed, that they don't get to have the life together that they envisioned for themselves. But then also, what is the fate of their child, their their unborn child, right? And I think this is more saying, I don't know what is gonna what I don't know what the world is gonna be like when I wake up, but at least I'll be wealthy. But really what he means is that doesn't matter, right? That he would trade that well. He would trade his good credit score to have the life with his wife and his baby, the life that he's in envisioned here. So I think that you're spot on in showing Zelazny looking at Christianity, if not necessarily the rituals and structure and organization of Christianity, but the worldview of Christianity as being kind of a, an antidote to the problems that these characters are having. I think that we saw that in the Keys to December as well. Certainly, he has a, a, a sort of Christian outlook on the 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 quest for being like God, right? I mean, this is the whole Garden of Eden set up to begin with, right? To be like God in some way. Uh, is certainly, the the quest. Certainly, at least the idea of 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 living forever, of not maybe taking uh, environmental stewardship seriously, among other things. Uh, Zelazny at least has a, a a Christian worldview, and I should say specifically, kind of a, a Catholic Christian worldview. I have been reading some of the biographical uh, entries that we have in these two volumes from the NASFA. Uh, and they do talk about his upbringing in Ohio in a Catholic family, but there's not really any information, at least so far, that I've read about whether or not he continued to practice Catholic Christianity or any other type of religion as an adult, you know, in the same in the way that we know this about Gene Wolfe, for example. Yeah, whether or not he's continued to
0: practice, it's clear that that kind of upbringing in that uh, environment has left a, a big impact on him as a mode of examining and being in the world. I think we need to move on at this point and just take a glance here at Unger's poetry. We could probably do a whole episode on it and its <laughs> relationship to the story, but but we don't need to do that. I do have to say on a meta-textual note that Zelazny wrote a bunch of these poems before he wrote the story. He says in the end notes of this story that he had a trunk of poems and would try to find ways to use them in his stories. I wonder though, if he went back and reread the two poems in this story and built anger around the maybe cynicism or, or darkness that he found in the poems when he revisited them. That's just a, a thought. I don't know if you... Uh... If, if you have anything to say about that, Glenn. Well, it's certainly a great writing prompt, right? I mean,
1: maybe you don't have poems of your own that you can go and milk for a uh, short story or to think of a, a prose character that you're going to have, but you can certainly go to someone else's poetry and, and, and do that. I mean, and Zelazny has drawn on so much here, but it is it is a cool idea to think, who, if not me, who's a fictional character who may have written these poems and what would that person be like? It, maybe it's interesting, actually, that the, the person Zelazny envisions here as having written these poems is uh, not a likable person not a good person by any means. Yeah. I mean, who knows when he wrote these poems, they could have
0: been written like you know six years ago or something and six years before he wrote this story or something like that. And he was still a kind of angsty adolescent. W.H. Auden says that this is a terrible idea, that you should not write poems for a story. So start with writing authentic poetry and then maybe go back and revisit it and build a a character around it. Uh, uh, Auden thinks that characters can't write poems uh, in their own (laughs) stories. I I think this story kind of proves us wrong, but it kind of proves him wrong a little bit. But I also think Zelazny did a lot of reflecting on the type of character that would write these poems in in the building of Unger as well. So I'm not going to read all the poems in the story. There are two. I really want to focus on the second stanza of the first poem that we get first, uh, kind of in service to a larger question that we've been pointing to in both the recap and the uh, discussion episode so far, which is like, who is the author of this text? Who is the narrator? Is it just a third person perspective, or is it somebody in the story? Really, is it Anger? So the second stanza of this first poem called Our Wintered Way Through Evening and Burning Bushes Along it is this. Perhaps it is the essence senescent, dream cold from the sleepers, That soaks upon this road in weatherborne excess. Or perhaps the great anti life learns to paint with a vengeance to run an icicle down the gargoyle's eye. Now, this stanza really jumped out to me because there's language in this stanza that is used in the story before. And, And like all these references to, like, kind of Pasternak's translated work and that Unger makes and other uses of language that tie the story together, this stanza is maybe a key to understanding the the writer of the story and why the person wrote this story. So in this stanza, we have references to the set as the sleepers. This is probably a poem about what it means to live in cryostasis most of the time and see the world burn, as Leota points out. And we have a reference to the gargoyle as well, which is something that Moore has used to reference Ma, uh, Mary Maud Mullen earlier in the story. As we said before, the the generous patron who asked us to do this story has suggested that it may be the case that Unger has written this story. I, I think it's totally believable based on the type of language that exists in the poems and exists only in like the thoughts or other characters the wasteland existing in two places once spoken by Unger, one, Thought by Mary Maud Mullen, the unnamed speaker of the kind of witty quote, married on Christmas, divorced on 12th night, could be a reference to something that Unger said but doesn't want to tie himself to. So, if Unger has written the story, Glenn, in your mind, why has he written this? Or do you even think it's plausible? That Unger has written the story and that Zelazny is just really working on his craft and kind of not putting all those pieces together as a a writer, kind of starting with these poems and building the language out of them and not thinking about who the writer of the story is, but just trying to tell a good story.
1: I think the answer plausibly could be yes to all of those. I will take a stance on this because you know that's what we're supposed to to do here, and maybe you'll take the opposite stance, and we can fight about it. But before we talk any more about this, I just have to say that well, one, I don't think this is a very good poem. I'm not sure any of these poems are, are very good. And the the book that they come from that Unger wrote called uh, Chisel in the Sky is actually a book of poetry that Zelazny wrote before he turned to writing science fiction short stories. I guess when he finished his uh, master's degree at Columbia, he really wanted. To to be a poet, but couldn't make that work. I don't think this is a very good poet. And in fact, this line here, perhaps it is the essence senescent, just reminded me of Beauty <laughs> Effulgent from Spike <laughs> in the Buffyverse, right? The sort of quintessential bad poem in the Buffyverse. Right. Uh, exactly. just, just seemed exactly like that. But to get to the real question that you're asking here about the authorship, I had a a strange journey with who I thought was the author or what I thought was going on, which is that I was and, and really kind of remain. Both puzzled and disturbed by the editorialized violence in the opening scene, these these lines that follow dashes, where it's not clear who's thinking them. They're not really in. Uh, they're not in full sentences. They're not necessarily narrativized in in any way, and they seem almost parenthetical. This uh, this. Uh, the the thoughts about crushing Leota and 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 some of the other thoughts as well. And so then when this story takes a real dark turn and ends with Unger doing violence to Leota, I went back to on my second read and I was determined to read this like it was Fight Club. I was determined to see that Unger and Moore are actually the same person. I don't think that's true. I think Mary Maud Mullen indicates that they're different people and, and maybe there's some other uh, there there might be some other perspectives where we see distinctly that other people are seeing both of them in the room together and so on but that was my first impulse was that this is really about hunger and not about more and i i will definitely i can definitely buy the idea that hunger wrote this story. And one of the pieces of evidence that we have here, and, and this was something our listener pointed out to us as well, is that when we leave Unger here in this book, he is writing something down in a, a journal or something down in a notebook. We know that he's a writer, maybe he's just writing poems, but as someone who in that scene is expressing uh, guilt and, and also shame and needing forgiveness, even if he's not wanting to ask for it, someone who's trying to heal from his own madness, his own terrible behavior, I could see him writing this story for his own catharsis, for sure, and trying to write it from Moore's perspective as well, to, to write Moore as the protagonist of this story, to make himself kind of a, a a background character until the the very end. And to me, that would actually even explain some of the inconsistencies in Moore's character and the violent impulses that he has towards Leota from the very start, that those are really Unger's impulses, that Unger, even though he's trying maybe to exercise himself here, exercise his own demons, can't step fully away from the, the darkness that's inside him here.
0: It's almost a projection of Unger's sense of feeling led on, perhaps by Leota, uh, or his anger that she's doing this again, and he's putting that in more as he sees more, maybe as he sees more, maybe struggle with his feelings, probably pretty openly for Leota at this at this Christmas dance. Uh, it, it really makes sense to me, and and my. It really makes sense to me that Unger is the writer of the story, that it's written as a form of contrition or catharsis, as you said, as an expression of empathy with his enemy um, to try to work through why he murdered the person he claimed to have loved. Um, And to me, it's the way that the language really hangs together between the poems, uh, the references throughout you know, we see Anger making all these references in the story, and then it's him that's maybe editorializing these nicknames or these uh, child, these ideas of who the archetypal parents of Leota are. It, it just it, it works that way, um, but I could also totally see the case that Zelazny is still working on his craft, still a young writer, extraordinarily talented, and is building a language set out of the poems that he's already written and see how they fit. Um, but the poem is called The Graveyard Heart, and it does come from Unger's poem In the Dogged House, which I'll read again, which says, the heart is a graveyard of Kriegis hid far from the hunter's eye, where love wears death like enamel, and dogs crawl in to die. And this gives us the title of the poem. So what do you make of that where the, the title of the story comes from one of Unger's poems? Just that the, Is it just that this poem represents the main theme of the story, that there's something in humanity that is both uh, wonderful, but also broken that needs to be worked on before we solve all the problems of society? Or is it a
1: clue that Unger has uh, written the story? The first thing I want to say about this is that in the apparatus that we have for the story uh, here in these editions, we're, we're told that the manuscript title for this, what Zelazny was originally calling the story, was not the Graveyard Heart, but was uh, Party Set. I'm not sure. It, we don't get any information about when and where in the process it changed. If it was Zelazny's idea to change it uh, to the Graveyard Heart or not, but we will proceed with uh, death of the author here and and just treat the story as it exists, uh, as the the as the Graveyard Heart. And to me, this definitely would be an indication that Unger wrote this story, and maybe the question is, what heart? Which heart that appears in the story is the graveyard heart, right? Is it the heart that literally appears in the story, which is to say, Leota's heart that he drives a stake through, or is this about his heart? Is this about what's wrong? with him. Is this about his heart being a a graveyard? Is this about his heart being a place where love wears death like enamel and dogs crawl in to die? I mean, that seems like a fairly apt, a fairly appropriate description for uh, someone who's done this heinous thing.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it speaks both to Unger and maybe the character arc of Moore as well. And so I do think that this is actually a much better title than than the party set because it does capture a lot more of the story than than the original title. So I'm glad it was changed for whatever reason. But I think on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. Remember, we have more Zelazny coming on Elder Sign in a little while, and we've
1: already released Keys of December on the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. So be sure to check those out. And while you are on the internet, we would love for you to come talk with us on our forum at claytemplemedia.com or check us out on our subreddit, which is just claytemplemedia. We talked about a lot, both in this discussion episode and in the recap episode. Uh, We would certainly love to have a discussion about who wrote this story, whether it was Unger or Moore or someone else. Or maybe you actually like my idea that that there is some sort of fight club thing going on here. That would be a great conversation to have in uh, either of the places where you can find us and our other listeners. Also, as always, if you would like to commission us to do an episode about your favorite story or some interesting speculative fiction topic of your choice, we would love to do that for you. So please get in touch with us. Next time, we will be back with the story Foundation by China Mieville. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.